Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, and this is the podcast where we discuss the connection between money, happiness, work, and meaning. Today is a special Thanksgiving week episode of Crazy Money. There is no guest. This is a guestless week. I'm going to read a few of the essays that I've written on my Medium channel. That is paulollinger.medium.com. These essays have to do with, oh, some of the same stuff we talk about here on Crazy Money. As I said, money, happiness, work, meaning, the definition of success, where true happiness lies in life, things like that. Myths that we all buy into that will be disproven at some point in your future experience when you finally get those things that you want. We've done 35 interviews this year so far. Highlights include everybody from Moby, LL Cool J, and Andrew Sullivan. Last week, we had Judith Roden on the program, Stevie Van Sant, and then a collection of other wonderful academics, authors, and interesting people whose experience and or money journeys have helped us understand a little bit more about all these things we talk about here, as I've mentioned already twice. I'm not going to repeat it. Four or five more episodes yet to release before the end of 2021 and begin 2022, February 1st of which will mark the fourth year of Crazy Money. Four years! I can't believe that. I, that is hard for me to believe. At that time, we will have about 135 episodes in the can and in the world, out in the world. And we've got some pretty great people coming up, including Ken Honda, the author of the book Happy Money, one of the best-selling money authors in all of Japan, Joe Saul Sihai, our good friend from the Stacking Benjamins podcast. Julie Lithcott-Hames, who is the author of a couple of great books that I'm reading. One I've just finished reading called How to Raise an Adult, and one that I'll be reading shortly before our interview called Your Turn, about releasing young adults into the world and giving them the opportunity to be their own entities. And that all ties back into what our definition of success is and how that manifests in how we raise our kids. Lots of other interesting folks coming up also. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to reflect and offer a different kind of show today. And so uh, as it's Thanksgiving, it's a time to reflect on gratitude. It's a time to reflect on all the gifts in our life. It's a time to just think through, hey, who we are and how we're going to carry on and be our best selves through the holidays and into the new year. So this first essay is called Burn Your Boats or Maybe Don't. Cortez had second thoughts, you will too. What's interesting to me about this article, besides the fact that it's hilarious and well-written, I think, is that I haven't posted on Medium for a while, but I was writing for this publication called Forge, which is one of their curated publications there. They pay a few bucks and they help you with editorial and they've been very good partners, but occasionally I'll submit something and they'll be like, hey, uh, we're not interested in taking this. And I'll be like, uh, why? It's funny. It's interesting. And they come back with, uh, well, Cortez was a uh, conquistador who engaged in genocide and murdered all these people. And, you know, that might be true, but it's not like I was advocating on behalf of Cortez. So this has nothing to do with me saying, hey, let's all be Spanish conquistadors. Let's go and plunder all indigenous peoples. That's not what I said. Cortez is historically known for the concept of burning one's boats. When he landed on the east coast of Mexico back in 1520 or whatever, to impart the importance of the mission onto his men. Yes, they were all men. They were all white Spanish men. When he did this, he burned the boats. And he said, basically, we're not leaving until the job is done. Get used to it. That is the concept that I was going for here. 
not trying to make any political statement. Anyway, as I meditated on the concept of burning your boats and the dedication of one's career to something more non-traditional, Cortez came up. So this is the essay, Burn Your Boats, or maybe don't. Cortez had second thoughts, you will too. Are you nervous? I'm nervous. Here we go. Quit your job. That's what the cult of potential achievement wants from you. They dare you to pull the ripcord, probing on their podcast. What would you do if you weren't afraid? Thus implying that anyone with a steady paycheck is a corporate cream puff. Modern ninjas, they preach, live awesomely off the grid through entrepreneurship, the arts, or kite surfing, mountain climbing, veggie juicing, fasting, and Bali. To make the point, these performance provocateurs cite historical badassery such as Spanish conqueror Hernán Cortés, who, upon landing his fleet in Mexico, demonstrated the commitment to the mission by torching his ships. This, you must agree, was the most rad motivational move ever because in 1519 there was no UberX, let alone Uber Flotilla. <laughs> Six years ago, I abandoned a very lucrative career in digital media to pursue life as a writer and stand-up comedian. So I know a little bit about the tenacity of dreams and the realities of boat burning. My informed point of view leaves me convinced that Cortez headline, Conquistador Blazes Barges, You Should Too, tells only half the story, and that in a moment of post-combustion clarity, Cortez summoned his second-in-command, Joe, to inquire on the state of his fleet. Here's how it went down. I'm just curious here, my good chap. Apparently, Cortez sounded a bit like John Cleese, or a bad impression of John Cleese. Did we, in fact, burn all the boats? Oh, yes, we did, sir. You made a most spectacular blaze of those crafts. You don't say. Uh, it seems my recollection is a bit foggy from all the adrenaline and uh, sherry. Oh, a drama tin past your lips, sir. But you are all the more inspiring for it. Sweat beads on the captain's forehead. So good to hear. Never have I heard a more dramatic rallying cry, sir. You summoned the crew to conquer not just the savages, but the boundaries of their hearts and souls. I said that. Sir, do you not recall? You exhorted the men to set flame to the boats, and then dispatched to both his highness and his holiness a lengthy memo with the subject line, Adios Pendejos. Really? You cc'd the entire armada. Oh dear. What else did the missive contain? Oh, uh, lots of good stuff. About forging your own way, eating what you kill, and assorted quotes from the Quattro Horas Workweek. Powerful stuff. The cringing Cortez brings his palm to his cheek and continues. Tell me, Lieutenant, did we spare any vessel at all? Perhaps a modest dinghy? Oh, no, sir. You insisted on a most comprehensive conflagration. If nothing else, I'm thorough. Sir, are you having second thoughts about our mission? Oh, no, 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 yeah, yes, yes, I am. But didn't you say jump and the parachutes will appear? I read that on a successories poster. I thought it sounded cool. Oh. And it's not second thoughts so much. I'm just getting a touch nostalgic about those old boats of ours. They were, they were grand, weren't they? What with their ample salary, health benefits, and unlimited free snacks? The snacks were nice. I'm not so deluded as to pretend the seas were always calm. Remember Q2 1507? How could I forget? For 90 days, I was covered in my own sick. But right, and, and we made it through together. We had nautical charts, after all. I do miss maps. Right? Who knew there was such a luxury? What I wouldn't give for a good cartographer. The two stand together in silence for a moment as the subordinate ponders his boss's words. Sir, this might not be my place, but... 
Have you considered hiring a career coach? And scene. Luckily for the Spaniards, less so for the Aztecs, who, uh, not germane to this story, but just interestingly to point out, were cannibals who practiced human sacrifice. Cortez composed himself and got his plunder on big time. Here's the point of this highly contrived parable. Elective mid-career reinvention comes at a very high cost. So before you tell your boss what you think of him and douse your cubicle with kerosene, you might consider some of the things that I've learned. Number one, do it only if ye can't not do it. Can't not do it. However challenging you think it's going to be to do comedy, make the senior tennis tour, or disrupt the grilled cheese industry complex with your networked panini app, it's going to be way harder than you think, like way harder. And if you can stomach a traditional career, you should probably stick with it. Number two, check your provisions. Even if you're already wealthy, making zero money year after year is a huge drag and will make you question your mission a thousand times, a thousand times. For those of you who aren't good at math, that's a million times, especially when you see your old colleagues continue to move forward, heaping on the dough and professional accomplishments. Yes, side note, careers aren't static. For 10 years, I've been sitting on the sidelines, and my friends who are already doing amazing things have continued to stack on the accomplishments, and I'm proud of them. I really am, but it's hard to watch them continue to go. So strap yourself to the mast of Odysseus, because dreams are the siren songs that will steer you into the poorhouse, if only on a relative basis. Number three, it's not just the booty. And booty here refers to monetary type things, okay? A paycheck is more than cash. It's a third-party validation of your value. When those you matter pings disappear from your biweekly sonar, you will inevitably start to wonder, what the hell am I doing with my life? You'll also learn that your old shipmates, coarse and reeking of grog, though they were, provided laughs, support, and if nothing else, a break from those pesky voices in your head. And my friends, those voices never stop. Even if you listen to the episode two weeks ago with Dr. Ethan Cross, author of the book Chatter. Number four, know your destination. You may find someone to put you on stage or fund your idea with a little seed money, but the initial euphoria of doing your thing will dissipate quickly and be replaced by how do I do my thing at scale, which will likely take years to figure out. So if you can't answer this question, that is, how do I do my thing at scale, keep your career away from open flame. Number five, check your mate's resolve. If you're single and plan to remain so forever, then do whatever you like. Nobody cares. But if you're committed to another person or family, you got to have them on board. After all, what you do for work and your happiness with that thing has a very meaningful impact on household harmony. Sooner or later, you're going to hear this from your partner. If you're not having any fun, why don't you just go back to your old job? Heck, they had free snacks. You're going to hear that, believe me. Because if you're grumpy, your partner's not going to want you to be grumpy. He or she wants you to be a happy person. So here's the conclusion. I'm not saying don't do it. Just make sure that you're doing it based on what's in your heart and not because some dude on Instagram thinks he knows what's right for you. Whatever you decide, buen viaje y buena suerte. So that's the article about Cortez. Again, it's not political, except for the little, uh, you know, couple things I said in there about that kind of made it political. But here's the thing. I have had moments of doubt in the last 10 years, over 10 years now, I quit Facebook 10 years ago in October. I worked for one year in that time in a traditional job. I went back to work after three years because I didn't have the guts to admit to myself that I really wanted to be a comedian, a writer, and create stuff for a living. I didn't have the guts to admit it. But that job finally convinced me that I was not being true to myself unless I put my full heart 
and days of my life into the effort to become that creative person that I've always wanted to be since business school, since I told those jokes at business school and got bit by the comedy bug. And so that's been about seven years full time, not including the two years I spent before I worked at Facebook doing comedy. And in those seven years, I have doubted myself a thousand times, a thousand times. I wake up in the, in the morning excited about what I'm going to do, but wondering where it's all going to lead. In the middle of the day, I'd be frustrated. I've written 60,000 word manuscript that I've shopped twice with a book agent to no avail. I'm going to finish that book, but it's frustrating. It's very, very frustrating. And I've doubted myself a thousand times, a thousand times. But over time, I've stopped doubting myself so much because I've really stopped thinking about letting other people and the response to what I do determine whether or not I'm successful, that I'm doing the thing that I want to do in the way that I want to do it. And that is the reward in and of itself. And when we give up waiting for other people to validate what we do, we actually gain the respect of other people because they're like, that person is doing what they're doing. They're on their mission and they have to respect it. They might think it's a little foolish, but they have to respect it. Along those lines, I'm going to read the second of two articles that I've written that I want to share with you today for our Thanksgiving meditation. And this one is from March of uh, this year. It's called The Thing Malcolm Gladwell Forgot to Mention. Malcolm Gladwell, as we all know, the author of The Tipping Point and other books like that. And he's famous for proliferating the 10,000-hour concept. That is, to gain mastery at a craft requires 10,000 hours of practice, of dedicated practice. It isn't his concept, but he popularized it. He brought it into the mainstream through his writing. All right, this is the thing Malcolm Gladwell forgot to mention, why 10,000 hours doesn't guarantee the success of your dream. In his 2008 best-selling book, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell delivered to the mainstream the theory that gaining mastery of any craft requires 10,000 hours of dedicated practice, as he calls it, the magic number of greatness. The trade you're in doesn't matter much, he argued, because What all skill-based pursuit have in common is that repetition at the scale of years of your life is the only path to proficiency. Similarly, the actual number of hours may vary, but that's not the point. In this controversial model, 10,000 hours plays the same symbolic role as 40 years in the desert did for the Israelites, a long, arduous journey through a wilderness beset with strife and dream-killing doubt. But while Gladwell is right that even the most naturally gifted can't succeed without putting in the time, his maxim lacks a crucial caveat. 10,000 hours of sincere focused training in a craft is just the price of admission. You can put in the time and still suck. Okay, perhaps that's an oversimplification. If you practice at something 40 hours a week for five years, 40 hours a week times 50 weeks a year times five years is 10,000 hours, you get two weeks off for Christmas and a week to go to Fort Lauderdale. If you practice something 40 hours a week for five years, you will definitely improve and you might even become a master. But mastery of a thing doesn't guarantee success in the form of extrinsic rewards. That is money, fame, respect, or even a job. You could be the best oboe player in North America, but still not be able to pay your bills or have your brilliance acknowledged by the world. And when you're really, really good at something, but no one notices, it feels like sucking. The mistake lies in the logic of our dreams. When most people envision the perfect way to make a living, they think of activities that are one, fun, two, provide accolades, and three, don't require long division. This general passion for the glittery, self-aggrandizing, and non-quantitative results in a supply of pretty good comedians, okay singer-songwriters, and decent essay writers, hello, that significantly exceed the demand for our services. 
which means that almost none of us will be able to earn a living solely by doing our thing. Morgan Housel, the financial writer and author of The Psychology of Money, who was also on Crazy Money this year, by the way, captured this stark reality in a recent blog post. I quote, being good at something doesn't promise rewards. It doesn't even promise a compliment. What's rewarded in the world is scarcity. So what matters is what you can do that other people are bad at. I'm going to read that again. Being good at something doesn't promise rewards. It doesn't even promise a compliment. What's rewarded in the world is scarcity. So what matters is what you can do that other people are bad at. Housel's declaration here is the sobering, no bullshit other side of the 10,000 hours coin. The marketplace doesn't care how much you practice. It cares very little about how good you've gotten. And it definitely doesn't care how much you care. Either someone else can't live without what you have to offer or your dream is a hobby. This, of course, isn't the way it should be. Anyone who loves to bake and puts in the time should be able to earn lots of money selling muffins. Novelists who can weave language into a tapestry of emotions should get more respect than TikTok celebrities who attract millions by lighting their farts on camera. My Donna Summer tribute band should be on the next cover of Rolling Stone. But that's not how the world works. So before you quit your job to master the oboe, develop the next Smash video game, or disrupt the grilled cheese industry with your networked Panini app, I plagiarized my own joke there. I can't, I just, I just realized I did that. I like that joke though, it's good. Before you do any of those things, check your motivations and consider a line from Wishing Well, a song by alternative rocker Bob Mould. There's a price you pay for a wish to come true. Trade a small piece of your life. Totally true. You want it? That's fine. Just quit your job and spend years pursuing it. That was commentary, by the way. Continue with the reading. When you commit to spending 10,000 hours getting good at something, you are trading a big piece of your life. And the only thing you're guaranteed is learning the answer to the question, what would happen if I gave it my all? That's it. Trying is your trophy. And everything else, if there is anything else, is gravy. The good news is that no matter what else happens, persistence will generate meaningful intrinsic rewards. If you keep going down the 10,000 hours path, you will experience the joy of engaging in your art, the pride that comes from hard-won improvement, and the camaraderie you feel when you find fellow travelers who share your passion. So let go of external outcomes and do your thing for the love of the craft. Love is not just the only sensible reason to chase a dream. It's the fuel that will keep you practicing while the world ignores you. The end. I like that piece because I think it's true. And I think these are things that I didn't know when I went into chasing my dream and things that I know now. And embracing these things makes me happier. Really focusing on them and saying like, I've had some success. I haven't had monetary success. I haven't had success in the currency of fame. I've improved. I've met a lot of great people. And I have gotten some recognition, some small recognition. But the truth of the matter is, is that even when I have five times the recognition that I have today, when I have five times the number of listeners to this podcast, I'm still going to want more. If I sell out 360 tickets to a few nights in a row of a comedy show like I did back in August, I want to sell out 3,000, 3,600. That's how we're built. We are built to want more. And this will drive us batty insane if we're not conscious of controlling that desire. We're all going to be dead in a few decades anyway. So we might as well enjoy the day-to-day beauty of practicing the thing that we care about and the hard-won recognition, no matter how small, no matter how big that comes from the work we put in and the love that we put into the craft. I don't know what you're up to this Thanksgiving. I don't know what's on your mind, but 
I hope that you stop and use this holiday to remind yourself to truly be grateful for the things that you have in your life. In the last few years, I've lost some friends. I know there are people out there dealing with serious illness right now, and it is never far from my mind that life is short. And so on this Thanksgiving, this week, as you spend time with your loved ones, and even loved ones that can be challenging to be with, maybe you're the loved one who's challenging to be with. I'm not that person, am I? Am I that person? As you spend time with those people, do your best to remind yourself that even though this country right now is locked in polarized political strife, that we are still incredibly fortunate to live in one of the relatively few countries in the world that has a strong rule of law, that has the right to free speech, that has the right to worship as you see fit or to not worship if that's how you see fit. There's much to be grateful for in our society. There's much to be grateful for in our personal lives for our health, for the health of our loved ones, of our children, and for the opportunity that they have to achieve as much as they can possibly achieve. Because for the most part, I'm assuming for these listeners, they have enough to eat, they go to good schools, and they have parents who care about them and are focused on developing them into strong, autonomous adults. That's what I think about. I don't necessarily use the word autonomous in my thoughts and in my meditation, but that's how I think about where we are right now as a world and as a family. I am grateful to you for being a listener to this podcast, for sharing it with your friends, and for giving me feedback on how to make it better. This has been a great example of some of the cool stuff that can come when you when you focus on just doing something because it's worth doing. You know, I've gotten to meet all the people I mentioned earlier. I've gotten to stay in touch with so many of you that I otherwise wouldn't be in touch with friends from high school, friends from college, new friends that I've just met through social media who've reached out based on the podcast. And it means a lot that this means something to you. So thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your advocacy. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your loved ones.